Well, hello, everybody. My name is Bob Chalfin, and I'm honored to have Peter Fader, a professor from the, War uh, the Wharton School. And he's going to be talking about customer lifetime value and its role in corporate valuation. But before we get started, Peter, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, it's, uh, on, on one hand, it, it's a, a, a long, interesting story. On the other hand, it's short and boring. Um, so uh, uh, I was a, a math major at MIT, love crunching numbers, love predicting things, whether it's our shared passion for sports or just, you know, just uh, any, anything where, where, where data is is at the, at the forefront. Uh, and a lot of people don't associate that with marketing. But as you start to get more and better data about customers, it's actually a really rich area for, for building mathematical models. So that's what I've been doing as a professor here at Wharton for 36 years, is building models of, you know, how many customers are we, are we going to acquire? Or how often are they going to buy? Or how long are they going to stay with us? How much are they going to spend? So dealing with a lot of, let's say, mundane tactical marketing sorts of things is thinking about things like loyalty programs new product launches and how we could uh, arrange them more effectively to get the right kinds of customers it's not until recently that it took a lot of that same thinking a lot of the same modeling and crossed over to the finance world uh, to take some of these the, the very same models and to say you know what instead of just trying to limit ourselves to saying how many units of this product will we sell Let's try to make forecasts of overall company revenue, which, if you think about it, is nothing but customers buying things. So once again, if we can predict how many customers are going to acquire and how long they're going to stay and how often they're going to buy and so on, that's revenue. Uh, and that is then a direct path to overall corporate valuation. So it's been relatively recent, but boy, oh boy, has it been interesting. Now, what about the, um, what are some of the biggest takeaways that someone could have. You have a closely held business. Uh, you're not publicly held. What should they be doing that they're not doing in this area? Well, for one thing, once you start looking at the business through the lens of the customers instead of the products that we sell, uh, let's face it, every company or any company that's at least staying afloat is going to have some amount of customers who love them. We're going to stay with them forever, going to buy everything that they put out there. Uh, and my contention is to really understand how many of your customers are in that camp, what makes them different, and how you can find more customers like them. So on a tactical side, it kind of gives you just real direction about what you should be doing on a day-to-day, quarter-to-quarter basis. And on a strategic side, that's going to drive the long-term health of the company is just getting more of those kind of, you know, right tail customers, because uh, uh, that, that's just, it's just like printing money, basically. So instead of just looking at the customer in some kind of, you know, singular, homogeneous way, is to start to celebrate the differences across customers and then leverage them in serious financial ways. Well, what could the business owner or the students that are coming out of Wharton, for example, do to try to find these customers that are going to generate monthly recurring revenues or annual recurring revenues? I love that question. It's really not that hard. It's just a, it's a matter of, of, of thinking to do it. So again, very often we just look at the business in terms of, uh, oh, we just launched a new product. How many units did we sell? But we got to start asking ourselves, 
who's buying that product? Are they the valuable customers or not? And and what is it that makes the valuable customers, again, those long-lived ones, what, what is it that makes them different? What products are they seeking? Uh, what, 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 what kind of auxiliary services and benefits uh, do, do they want? And to start use those those differences, those insights to, to drive the things that we do on an ongoing basis. Instead of just, hey, we need a blockbuster. We just need to sell a lot of stuff. We don't care who buys it which unfortunately is the usual mindset, is to start getting a little bit more fine-grained about it. Uh, and if you can kind of get into that rhythm about what makes those valuable customers different and, and finding ways to cater to them and acquire more like them, that is business success right there. Now, your your most recent book and the title of that is? The Customer Base Audit. Right. How, what should somebody be doing? They uh, And obviously there's... We're asking you in a, in a few minutes to talk about this big book, you know, this this detailed great book that you have. What should a business owner be doing to delve into this other than buying your book or in addition to buying your book? We should view our, our customer relationships and the activities that we use around them as something that that can be accountable. It's something that we can do rigorous. It's something that that's why we use the word audit in there. Uh, it's because, you know, too often when it comes to customer relationship management, when it comes to marketing more generally, it's a smoke screen. It's, you know what, we're just building the brand over here. Don't bother us. We're just building the brand. Don't look, you know, behind the curtain. Um, and, and we're saying that's not the way it has to be. And that if we, if we actually, if we're managing things right, then we should uh, hold our customer base up for scrutiny to say, look at the value of the customers. Look how much more there is now. Look at the, the better blend of customers we have now compared to last year. Um, look at the, uh, at, at the particular products that we're launching and how very highly appealing they are to the right kinds of customers. So a customer base audit, uh, you know, bringing, bringing some you know, sunlight uh, in, into the, the, the whole uh, customer database, I think is, is, is good for everybody. I think bringing some more accountability to the marketing folks building a bridge between marketing and finance and letting our outside stakeholders uh, understand that there's real value here. And, and maybe it ha it's not showing up as revenue just yet, but we got so many of these really valuable customers. Uh, you know, it's, it's more than just trust me. It's I can demonstrate it to you. Well, what characteristics or what sort of data should they get to determine if these customers are the ones that they want? And, you know, it, it, the answer is so simple, but but companies, especially marketers, like to overcomplicate it. Transaction log data. Who bought what when? That's all we need. Just tell me who bought what when. The problem is the smokescreen that marketers build. And, and again, it's not only marketers. Sometimes it's it's, it's other C-level people. Uh, let's look at all the other ways. Let, let, let's look at the, at the, at the, the personality characteristics of, of our customers. Let's look at their social media usage. Let's look at, uh, you know, let's look at influencers out there. I'm not saying that stuff is useless, but, but that's kind of icing on the cake. First thing we need to do is to bake a good cake. And we're going to do that through simple transaction log data is basically finding customers who stay a long time, buy frequently, spend a lot when they do. And then all that other stuff is, 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 at the margins might be helpful, but it, it, we, we just can't get distracted by a lot of the shiny objects that, that are, 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 are out there more and more every day. All right. So if a company's a B2B business, 
and they sell to customers, it's easier for them to track it because there's a smaller number of customers who have larger purchases. But what does a business do if they're selling to the general public, a retailer? Well, first of all, Bob, I really appreciate you raising that point because too often people read my books and say, oh, that's all well and good for B2C, but what about B2B? You are absolutely right. In B2B, it is much easier to do this stuff. As you said, it's easier to tag and track customers. It's much easier to identify who, what, what, when. It's much easier to change the relationship that, you know, you can, you can, you can't take everybody to, to go play golf with you next weekend. You're going to choose which clients you're going to take with you. So that idea of picking and choosing among customers and not treating them all equal comes more naturally in B2B. So part of my job is to show how we can take that mindset, that capability and scale it and do it with, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of customers instead of tens or hundreds of customers. So I believe that with data analytics and technology, with something like a customer-based audit, we can scale those ideas that, that, that arise naturally in B2B and make them equally applicable in B2C. Now, again, part of the problem is, can we get the data? Can we tag and track individual customers? That's always an issue. If you're running some kind of store and people are paying cash and you don't know who they are. So part of it is coming up with things like mobile apps and loyalty programs and, and ways to make it incentive compatible for people to, to raise their hand and say, hey, it's me, uh, and instead of uh, letting people uh, uh, remain kind of faceless and nameless uh, to us. So, you know, there are some challenges, but there are ways to overcome them. But so, because it seems to me that the bit, you know, like when we, we've we had business B2B businesses, that's easy. We know the certain type of customers that want to keep buying the new additions to our software. But on the consumer level, it's much more difficult. It is, it is, it is. And, and we've had some, some wonderful conversations recently with some companies that uh, I, I can't identify, but but are absolute paragon of, of companies that would be problematic here. In other words, hard to identify their individual buyers, uh, but but some of the things that they're doing, again, loyalty programs, mobile apps, and so on, um, it's, it's been wonderful. You know, a really great example is, uh, you know, my previous company, Zodiac, we sold it to Nike. And, you know, if you think about Nike a few years ago, all they would do was sell boxes of shoes to Walmart and Foot Locker. They had no visibility into the people, into the consumers. And they decided that they needed to change that, that that has to be a strategic priority to have a more direct relationship, to, to, to get consumers to self-identify and so on. That's one of the reasons why they bought my, my company, in order to uh, facilitate both the collection of data and to draw insights from it. So a company like Nike can do it, then, then, then almost anybody can. Again, it's not easy. It takes real commitment and real investment. But, but there are some, some wonderful case studies about it being done successfully. Well, I think on, on Nike's part, it was a brilliant move for them to purchase Zodiac. And I, I assume you agree just as much <laughs> on this. But it's just interesting how they but now you're watching the consumer and the consumer stops going there. They're not buying the shoes. They're not buying the socks that they're making. How do they how do they recognize this before everyone has left or before too many people have left. That's a great question. So when we do these analyses, we always do them at the level of the cohort. So instead of just looking at the customer base as a whole, 
we look at chunks of customers who were acquired at different points in time. This is where all the insight comes in. So let's look at the customers we just acquired versus the customers we acquired last year or the year before and look for substantial differences across them. So are we seeing big differences in their purchasing patterns, in the kinds of products that they're looking for and how long that they're staying with us? So very often it's it's those those differences across cohorts that's kind of the canary in the coal mine, that things might be going great because our, our, our long established customers, they're just buying as usual, but we're not aware of it that the youngest customers, the newest customers are are kind of acting differently, maybe in a bad way. So we don't see it right away when we look at the big picture, but when we drill down the cohort, we say, there's a problem here. And that problem is likely gonna persist. So, so looking at, at different generations of customers is a, is a very good early warning sign to see what's going on. Of course, sometimes it's good news too. Sometimes we'll see good patterns that we want to then, then replicate. Right. So it's that cohort-based analysis that a lot of companies just don't think of doing if they're doing a customer analysis at all. And we're saying it's absolutely essential. Wow. And now what about, I mean, because it, it, as you're talking about this, it, I keep thinking about the political polls that are coming out and how unreliable they are now, that people don't want to respond to the polls or that if they call you on your cell phone, if you don't know who the person is, you're not going to answer it. And your area code could be where you live, where you grew up, where you went to high school, not where you live now. How do you get that information from the customers? Yeah, actually, it, it's interesting that, that politics is such a, a data-driven area, but for exactly the reasons you mentioned, the data tends to be pretty poor. That uh, not, not only are you uh, uh, relying on different kinds of attitudinal questions, but you can never, ever, ever get the actual voting history. Whereas when it comes to more traditional marketing, we can get that. Now, we have to be careful about it. And there's always going to be some, some privacy concerns and so on. But the idea of knowing who bought what when is going to make the, the idea of, 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 of marketing, traditional marketing, going to be much more effective than, than, than political polling. Uh, now, we do worry about this. Uh, and with changes in technology, like the ways that Apple has made it much harder to tag and track individuals, uh, that's definitely a setback. But still, our ability, especially if we use first-party data, if we basically create a way that that customers want to engage with us, they want to get their loyalty points, they want to raise their hand and say, hey, I bought this. Can you, you know, uh, help me surround it with other products and services that will go, go well with it? As long as we can have that direct relationship with customers. And again, we do it in a way that's a win-win, uh, then we're going to be light years ahead of, of the folks in politics. Now, when you say loyalty programs, I think airlines, because they were the first ones, American Airlines was the first one to have it. And it just occurs to me that they don't write to me periodically and say, you know, you haven't been on a plane in three weeks or three days or three years. But I get emails from shoe companies or or from clothing companies all the time saying, you know, last year you bought three pair of shoes. We haven't heard from you this year. How come some companies are why is it like aren't the airlines following up on this? So a couple of things on that. And no, number one, sometimes companies go way too far with it. Sometimes it does start to get creepy and personal. Like we saw you had something in the shopping cart that you didn't buy. It's like, ooh, why do you know that? Yeah. Um, so I, I actually worry that the that the, these programs give us great rich data. 
And sometimes companies get the cart before the horse and they start doing a lot of that really in-depth, personalized stuff. And, and sometimes it, it can, I think it can creep people out more than it incentivizes them to buy. So part of it is figuring out where to draw the line, where we're getting insights, but we don't necessarily want to make people feel weird about it. Uh, and the airlines, through their long history, have, have to, to some extent found that, that reasonable balance. Uh, now, having said that, uh, they also have shadow uh, internal program. So you talk about American Airlines. Yes, there's the you know advantage program that any American flyer would know about, and you're getting your points and so on. But they also have an internal program um, that they never talk about. But they're doing exactly the thing that you mentioned. They're saying, you know, here's someone who used to fly with us a long time, but hasn't flown in a while. Why don't we just you know ping them and just say how you doing? Uh, and, I, and I've gotten some of those calls. So so they're actually more subtle about it than, than you might think. Um, but again, it's, 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 a, it's a different kind of game for, for airlines than it is for a retailer for, for all kinds of reasons. Let's give them credit for starting the loyalty program yeah. as we know it today, but they're not necessarily the right paragon, the right role model for all other companies. And it also amazes me how a retailer, and let's go back to your shoe example. How do they know how many shoes they're going to sell in a particular year? Just because I bought them last year, this year I may go to one of their competitors. How do they know that? I mean, I've heard an analysis that if you flip a coin 100 times and you keep score as to who's winning, heads or tails, you're going to, the lead's going to change six or seven times. And I remember that from statistics, and you know it better than I do. Uh-huh. So a lot of it is random. That's right. How do they predict? No, that's that's such a great point. And, and, and I fully believe in all that, that that the behavior of, of our customers really is, I'm not saying it is random, but it's as if random. You know, to, to me as the company, looking at my customers, it really does appear that they are flipping coins. Now, they're not, obviously, but the reasons why they're buying us versus buying from a competitor are so complex, they're so varied, are so far beyond anything that we can measure or observe that that building these 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 models that rely on this probabilistic nature of behavior, as opposed to saying, this customer's locked in, this one will never buy from us again, uh, you know, allowing for those different shades of gray, calibrating our models around these probabilities. And when we say, you know, there's a 40% chance you're going to buy, let's look at all of those customers for whom we said 40%, and it better be the case that 40% of them buy, even if we don't know exactly which ones. Um, so, so uh, admitting some of our Ignorance, acknowledging that we can never nail it all down to zeros and ones and have to live in a probabilistic as if random world, having a little bit more humility about that. that that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I think it leads to a much more effective way of, of managing customers and managing business as a whole. But when you read about, you know, company announces earnings and their sales decline by 1%, I mean, a lot of it to me just seems as if it's random. At that point, you know, they can't predict it that tightly. But that's what I want to do is is go one level deeper and to say, why is it that earnings have dropped off? Is it because they didn't acquire as many customers as they did before? Is it because customers are leaving sooner than we thought they would? Is it because they're not buying as often as we thought they would? Is it because they're not spending as much as we thought? So let's take overall earnings and just bring it down one level into those questions of customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase, and spend. Again, usually those that's just the domain of the marketing people. Um, but if we, if we make those like job one for the finance and accounting people, 
we'll be able to answer those questions more effectively, come up with better forecasts, and, and obviously take uh, better tactical actions to ensure the, the health of the company. Now, I'm looking at the time, and what what this, in, what this uh, interview has told me is that we're going to have to have you come back. But I have one other question for you. If you have these companies, and a lot of times they start out, they say, buy from us, we'll give it to you for free, we'll give you these mm. great bargains. I wonder, are they making mistakes? The food delivery companies say the first whatever are free. Are they just getting customers who are never going to come back? That is correct. It's a terrible idea. And, and a lot of those companies are paying the price right now. And the problem is investors just look at the top line and saying, oh, look, top line is growing in some hockey stick kind of way. But the problem is, it's because they're 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 uh, you know addicted to acquisition. They're doing whatever it takes to bring more customers in, as opposed to thinking to the long run: Are we bringing the right kinds of customers in? The ones who are going to stay with us a long time and actually make us profitable? Uh, and so that's a sector that's been uh, abysmally bad at doing so, uh, and it's just now being revealed. You know, as as the COVID sugar high is is kind of fading away. Um, we're, we're seeing what's going on there. And of course, it's not just them. There's a lot of companies like that. A lot of it does come down to the the kind of the incentives, the metrics that investors themselves put out there. So it's not necessarily that the companies are being stupid or evil or naive. They're, they're just kind of following the money. Um, and so it's a matter of having different metrics, different perspectives, different ways of, of evaluating the health of the health of the business. All right. Now, Peter, I want to be mindful of the time, but I have one last question for you. What you said is fascinating. Will you come back again for another one? Bob Chalfin, I love talking to you and I love uh, answering your questions. And if people find this interesting, count me in. Okay, Peter, thank you. Thank you, thank you.